I feel that like staying up too late slap happy feel, you know? Welcome to the Matt Mitchell Podcast. That was Anthony, and the reason he's feeling that feeling is because most of the time when we record in the morning on Friday, we don't do anything besides drink coffee and take notes and read books beforehand. But today, Anthony had a number of work meetings, and then we just had a really fun call with a church leader from Kansas. Shout out to you. That was a ball. So it's much later. We've done a lot more, and I hope that's not reflected in the quality of this conversation. But if so, thank you so much for being such a graceful They won't be able to tell. (laughs) And, And man, we recorded our first conversation, Big Picture, Revelation. Our promise for today's episode is that we would get into Bible study mode a bit more and think through some of the major parts of Revelation. Before we launch in, what's top of mind for you today? Top of mind, I wanted to begin with kind of a micro-spiritual discipline, a micro-contemplation of forgiveness and repentance. Just like you can pray a breath prayer, just the word Jesus, Lord Jesus, and so on, you can actually do the spiritual disciplines sometimes in very compact expressions. And so without taking 30 minutes for this, we are about to talk again about the apocalypse of John, John's apocalypse. And this text is really disputed and it's a source of division in the church, et cetera, et cetera. So I think it'll be advantageous for all of us to have a practice of forgiveness and repentance before digging in. Because there are those of you, as we talked about before, whose brains are shutting down as soon as we mention revelation or eschatology or anything along those lines, trauma and conflict. And there are those of you whose brains light up like you're having a stroke because you're just imagining all the disaster movie scenes and trying to do calendar math and so on and everything in in between. So let's just take a minute here. And on the forgiveness side, let's take a minute to forgive the people whoever God brings to mind quickly, or just as a category. The people, let's say, misguided teachers, misguided movie makers, whoever has had an influence on us regarding... Nick Cage. <laughs> Nick Cage is my favorite actor of all time. But he, he's in. I know, he's in uh, the Left Behind movie. Yeah. I, I never saw it. I read like half of the first book as a teen, and I was like, uh, pass. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so... It is a spiritual block to have unforgiveness, whether you realize it or not, toward people regarding this text. This letter was written to be a blessing to you. Again, John says that those who read it out loud and then keep it, live it out, are blessed. And that reality, that offering is limited to the degree that we walk in unforgiveness. So quickly, Lord Jesus, I ask that you would bring to mind anyone that we need to forgive regarding the revelation. And we thank you for the simplicity of the miracle, the gift of forgiveness. We say, all debts we release to you, Jesus. We obey your word to forgive anyone that we need to around revelation and a bad taste in our mouth regarding it. We ask that you would bless those people, those misguided teachers, those false teachers, those people using revelation for creative purposes in a way that kind of clouds our imagination, etc. We ask that you would bless them. 
And the next round of forgiveness is actually toward God. If you have judgments against God regarding the revelation, maybe because the way that you perceive God in the revelation is scary, or any kind of mistrust, any judgments you've made against the Holy Trinity or one person of the Trinity, yeah, just take this time to repent of that. You're actually allowed to forgive God. Not that God owes you anything or has done anything. Uh, All his ways are good, but we can still have unforgiveness toward God. So just take a minute for that. And we declare that, God, all your ways are good. We receive this letter, this apocalypse, as the gift that it is. We say that you are love. We trust you. All your ways are good. We say yes to you in the way that you reveal yourself in the revelation. And then two quick repentances. You're going to say who you forgave? <laughs> uh no. Is that serious? No. <laughs> uh, two, two quick repentances. The first one is repenting of a cynical perspective toward the revelation. There's a fine line between being humble about our ability to know everything there is to know, especially regarding prophetic texts or complicated texts, and the humility, humility towards the scriptures very quickly falls into just cynicism. So rather than saying, I'm humble and I admit that I don't know something, saying no one can know, uh, this is just a mess of a text and anything anyone says about it is just the roll of the dice. So repenting of a cynical perspective. Lord Jesus, we repent of any cynicism toward John's apocalypse, toward the revelation of you, Jesus, in this letter and declare that you can disciple us through the revelation that you have promised to bless us by reading it. And so we say yes to you and your goodness in this letter. And the last repentance is repentance of presumption, presumption on the text, presumption and a failure to be a faithful disciple to bring that hermeneutic of discipleship to the text. So we repent, Jesus, of ways that we have presumed upon the text rather than coming under the tutelage of John, of you, Jesus, of the Holy Spirit, of the church. Commit to a righteous laying down of our assumptions. Yeah, and say yes to you, how you have chosen to reveal yourself through this text. That's it. That's good stuff, man. I want to remind our friends listening that we are talking about Revelation because it is, in fact, the capstone of the Bible. I meant to say this in the first episode, and I may have, so this, if this is repetitive, bear with me. But I wanted to say that this book is like the final track in a concept album that is going to pull together threads, themes, motifs from the entirety of the biblical story in an absolutely amazing way. We said in the first episode that Revelation, and we quoted Balcom saying that Revelation is one of the greatest theological achievements of all time, one of the greatest literary achievements of all time. It really is. And if we're honest, the problem is very few of us, very few of us have ever done the kind of study of the entire biblical story that's needed to understand anything in Revelation. 
I'll say, I think I was 25 when I finally made it through one of those year through the Bible things, which makes me a very late bloomer, even among our friends, but that's not unusual where I don't know how many times in high school I made it through the Torah and then just started losing steam. And I was impressed with myself because I had made it through several legal codes, several law books. But then, man, you just get into the messiness of Joshua, the messiness of Judges. The kingdom period is a long ways away. And fortunately in our time, there are some very wise guides. You have the Bible Project. You have the Read Scripture app. You have great ways to actually make it through the Bible as a unified story. But you have to do that to get into Revelation and know what's happening. And if my friend, I just called you my friend, Trevor Longman III does know me. Usually these people don't, <laughs> but I wouldn't call us friends. Um, hey, Tremper. And scholar that I admire, you know, he uses a metaphor that my dad uses for the New Testament because he's an Old Testament scholar. And he says, it's like, but he has the, the, the real story. Uh, his dad was an odd person. And so they would actually go to the movies and arrive like 20 minutes before the end of the movie because that's the kind of person his dad was. Like, let's go. Let's just get the tickets till. I know we're a little late. And he said, I would just sit there being baffled. That's actually how most people experience the New Testament. And if that's how people experience Jesus, why does it matter that he's the Davidic king? Who's David? Why does it matter that he's claiming to have some kind of communion and relationship with Yahweh? Who's that? Is that the God of the Anglo-Saxons, the capital G? If that's the case, it's much more the case with the book of Revelation, which I don't know. If you followed, you know, I forget which stage it was because I don't watch any superhero movies anymore. But I did watch some of them up to Endgame. And if you just... No, it's like if you only saw Endgame, you would wonder what the heck is happening because in that movie, they go back and they revisit all the other movies by traveling through time. And then, so you would be disoriented. Why is Gwyneth Paltrow in an Iron Man suit? Yeah, exactly. And then, how much more if you came into the last 20 minutes of that movie and you're like, why is this army of African warriors walking through a glowing hole, like doing a chant and everyone's crying, you, it would be like, what the heck is going on? Revelation is just like that, only more so insofar as it pulls together thematic elements in the picture of reality from the entire Bible and weaves it into a single dense literary composition. So it's a hard text. Two things that I think will help us as a general heuristic for understanding this text. One, rather than reading it and A, assuming that we know what it means, and B, assuming that it only applies to some future code that we need to interpret and decode, to start with the question of what does this mean and what in the Old Testament is John referring to? Many of the worst formulations and important doctrines in the church come as a result of reading the New Testament in an orphaned way and not asking the first question, which is, what in the Old Testament, what pattern, what type are we referring to here? What are the images that are being drawn upon? 
so that we can understand what Paul's talking about, what John's talking about. The other one, letting go of the need for it to be linear. Rather than reading it as a, you know, one, two, three, four, five kind of sequence of events, letting it be circular and fractal in the way that it is. And trying to get the whole text in our heads and zooming out and seeing it as a tapestry. So a tapestry has the whole picture in one image, and there is narrative that can be discovered, but the threads are kind of going all throughout. So letting go of our need for linear time and narrative and letting it be as weird and as cyclical and spiraling as it is. There's a scholar, his last name is Beale, I'm forgetting his first name. We'll link to the book in our show notes per usual, Gregory Beale, and his book is John's Use of the Old Testament and Revelation. It is one of the go-to sources that you see quoted in many of the other commentaries and, and books on the Revelation. And uh, Beale gives a list of, I'm not sure how many, ways that John uses the Old Testament. This is going to be very helpful for us because once we go through this list, you'll realize just how challenging it is, first of all, to understand the Revelation, and it'll give us this palette, this toolkit that we can apply to the text. So quickly, I just want to go through the list. The first way that Beale says John uses the Old Testament is literary prototype. And this describes how John models his own material after patterns he sees in the Old Testament. So he follows a content sequence or a structure of some Old Testament passage, and he'll pull clusters of allusions and use them in specific sections to get material for his message. And then he, he does thematic uses of the Old Testament. So themes like the divine warrior, uh, earthly cataclysmic language, uh, frightening celestial events. And then John uses the Old Testament analogically. So he uses prominent Old Testament persons, places, and events to make his own content by analogy. John makes use of the Exodus plagues later in Revelation, but he's not citing them so much as using their imagery. And then he universalizes Old Testament theological content. So he takes something that the Old Testament applies to Israel, and he recasts it as applying to the rest of the world or to the church. So a very straightforward example of this, he applies the Old Testament kingdom of priest language to the church, which includes Gentiles. And then he does informal direct prophetic fulfillment. It's a very technical way of saying that without making direct quotations, he uh, alludes to Old Testament passages in such a way as to imply that John sees fulfillment of those passages in, in, in events related to Jesus previously or at his return. Indirect prophetic typological fulfillment, which is another technical way of saying typology. So a type is nonverbal foreshadowing is something to come. So it's a nonverbal prophecy. You're using images to prophesy things that Jesus ultimately fulfills. And it comes from this Greek word tupas, from which the word type comes. And the New Testament uses that, con that word tupas in several different ways. But a scholar named David Baker gives a great definition of type. And it's a biblical event, person, or institution, which serves as an example or pattern for other events, persons, or institutions two more. So the inverted use of the Old Testament. So there are allusions to things in the Old Testament, which on the surface are directly contradictory to their contextual meaning. So basically inverted types. And the final one is stylistic use of Old Testament language. And this one is really interesting to me. Scholars who work in the Greek of the Revelation frequently talk about John's propensity to use poor Greek grammar in his writing. And these mistakes are academically called solecisms. Our 
assumption is that they're on purpose. So one scholar claims John's text, John's writings, contain more grammatical irregularities than any other Greek document of the ancient world. And he accounts for this with a famous dictum. While John writes in Greek, he thinks in Hebrew, and the thought has naturally affected the vehicle of expression. So it seems that John's grammatical mistakes are deliberate attempts to express Semitisms, as in Semitic ways of speech, or Septuagintalisms, forms of speech from the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament. John makes these mistakes intentionally in Greek, and then he telegraphs something specific about the way it would be expressed in Hebrew. And one of the few translations of the Revelation where you can actually see that, read it, and sort of feel the, the strangeness of the language would be in David Bentley Hart's translation called the New Testament, a translation, because he preserves a lot of the peculiarities of each writer. The Revelation doesn't have any explicit quotations of the Old Testament. So in our last episode, we talked about how John has anywhere from hundreds to, let's say, a thousand allusions, references to Old Testament texts. Primarily, he works with prophetic texts, and actually very few from the Pentateuch, mostly from people like Isaiah, Zechariah. Ezekiel. Ezekiel is one of Daniel. The, the big ones. Yeah, yeah, Ezekiel and Daniel are the two big ones, actually. So the way that he's doing this is very creative, and it's very shifty, actually. And actually, if you were to take a class on hermeneutics or exegesis, or just read a blog post about how to read the Bible correctly, he basically breaks all of those rules. So we need to come under his tutelage once again and let him use the Old Testament in the way that he does. So tell us about the structure, Blaine. The first thing to say is that Biblical books have a structure, all of them. I remember the first book that I read about a biblical book, and I think it was actually the Story of God commentary series on Genesis. And if it wasn't that, it was a related book called A Biblical History of Israel that I thought was going to be like an introduction to the Old Testament, and it was... Wonderful book, 90% highly technical scholarly debate on uh, like different historical strategies and then a very slender, but still very good, good book. Uh, but I read and I, I, I just had not heard before that something as simple as these books have a design and the form is a part of the content. So if you've watched any of the Bible Project videos, which are so worth your time. That's the central part of that project's thesis, which is look at the way these are structured and you'll understand how to navigate the content. So things like just the fact that the book of Samuel, the Ascension account of David, ends, ends with these three related weakness stories from way earlier in the story is fascinating. The fact that the Ecclesiastes is actually a hosted conversation and you get this beginning and end of this other voice, it changes the way that we engage these books. Well, Revelation is complicated because the structure is less clear than something like Paul to the Corinthians, where he gives an introduction, has a five-part structure addressing particular problems, something about the gospel in reverse order of that, what I just said, and then a conclusion. So I quoted last time quite a bit from Richard Balcom's book, um, The Theology of Revelation. This time I'm drawing more on a different project, which is called The Climax of Prophecy. Also very good. 
But he has this quote at the beginning, and he says, John has taken considerable care to integrate the various parts of his work into a literary whole. And then he cites another scholar, John Barr, who says, whereas our concern is to divide the book, John's concern was to bind it together. So all of the structures that we're going to point out here of ways of thinking through the progression of this uh, apocalypse prophecy pastoral epistle, these are not hard and fast and can be broken. But one of the clues that you get from Balcom, who actually begins that book by saying that chapter in that book, it's chapter one, and he says, the definitive book on the structure of Revelation has yet to be written because it's so hard. But then he says, quote, Revelation was evidently designed to convey its message to some significant degree on first hearing, but also progressively to yield fuller meaning to closer acquaintance and assiduous study. It is important to realize that the essential structure of the book, without recognition of which it would be incomprehensible, must have been intended to be perceptible in oral performance. And I, I love, mm. he's nuanced there, yeah. where he says, there's a lot more that can be heard, but insofar as it's a circular apostolic letter, it's going to have auditory cues in an oral culture that make your ears burn. And so one structure will be, we're going to modify here a little bit, because, you know, Michael Gorman, who we also like, proposes a different four-part structure. Scott McKnight has a slightly different structure too. What I like about Balcom's is he says, you have a prologue and an epilogue that mirror each other. And then in the book, you have four big divisions that are signaled by the phrase, in the spirit. And they mark a transition in the visionary experience. So you get uh, in the spirit in four, verse four, two, we're, we'll explore all these eventually. Uh, you get it in 17.3, you get it in 21.10. and. What's fascinating about that is here's, this, here's the essential structure pulling these together. You have uh, an epistolary prologue, which is incredibly theologically dense in chapters 1, verses 1 to 8. Then in 1, 9 to 3, 22, you have the vision of the Christ who gives the seven messages to the seven churches. Then you have in... Uh, verse 4, 1, all the way to 1621, a vision of heaven from which developed the entire sequence of judgments. And when I think about Revelation, I usually break those out because a vision of heaven seems like its own literary moment. And we may talk about it that way. But it's actually pretty important to realize that the entire cycle of judgments is nested inside a vision of heaven. So, Chew on that for a minute. By the way, we'll post this in the show notes, and you can find this in the Climax of Prophecy, and we'll link to that too. Then you have in 17.1 to 21.8, the fall of Babylon and the coming of New Jerusalem. In 21.9 to 22.9, you have the actual New Jerusalem. So what that is, that would be a six-part structure with a prologue, an epilogue, and four big things in the middle. I also like bracketing out the vision of heaven because it gives you a seven-part structure, which I just like because seven's in the Bible. But, but the downside of that is to say, well, actually, 
that kind of uses multiple um, cues to break apart the book. And if we take the one that Balcom observes and says the prologue and epilogue are definite literary units, and then we have these transitions, again, it is it becomes meaningful to say that amazing vision of heaven and no one's worthy to open the scroll and the lion, but you see the lamb, and then all of the vision of all, the three sevens, the judgments, God's purification of evil happen inside that context is kind of a big deal. What else do you, what do you want to say about breaking the book of Revelation into pieces before we dive in and just see how far we get in talking through the movement of these elements? I'll just say that there seem to be multiple ways of dividing up this text and referring to it. So we hold that seven-part structure lightly. Um, it'll be useful for us to talk about it. I think part of the challenge in describing the structure of the revelation is it goes in multiple on multiple axes, let's say. Again, imagine a tapestry where you can see some patterns, but then you try to predict the next part of it, and it's a little bit different, but it also has depth. And so I just want to nod to the fact that this text is profoundly complicated in its structure and in the way that it's moving and has this kind of fractal zoom quality, especially when we get to the sevens and so on. But that point about the vision of heaven not being its own discrete unit, but being the context for the rest of the judgments is so essential because we basically will have no idea what's going on if we don't anchor it in that courtroom scene. To your point, Michael Gorman proposed that he, well, he works, even though he works closely with Balcom, he uses a different four-part structure, and it's kind of fascinating. He does one to three, four and five, six to 20, and 21 to 22. And these are tools to help you engage the message of different parts. But what's fascinating about Gorman's division is he puts the prologue through the messages to the seven churches as one unit, which is kind of not. And then he has the courtroom scene as its own unit, the judgments as their own unit, and the New Jerusalem through the epilogue as one thing, which as far as a skilled teacher showing you some of the major parts is totally on, and that's a great way to think about it. It's also not concrete. It's not as simple as saying that's where the book is broken up. <laughs> so I just double echo what you said. We're going to use kind of chapter distinctions as one way of thinking through the big beats in this book. But again, John has deliberately woven it together. Mm -hmm. So he hasn't created something that's broken into into sections. It's a single visionary experience of reality. So it's hard to break apart. Just yesterday, I was showing Christina my index. I sort of created a document that's like my personal commentary on Revelation, just pulling all the notes and quotes and stuff together. And I was like, look at this, and just started scrolling through my table of contents or whatever for my document. And it just goes on and on and on. Every bullet point deserves a place, deserves to be called out as a section. So the way that I structure the revelation is something like, I don't know, 40 plus parts. Anyways, all right, the prologue. Okay, we talked about the first few verses in the first episode where we said it's the revelation of Jesus. We said that you get uh, an amazing uh, Trinitarian theology in verse 4. And so, 
where I kind of want to pick up in the prologue, because the prologue we're talking about here is chapter one, verses one to eight. I want to start in first five, or actually five B, to kind of show the absolute density of the theology of Revelation. And then you can correct what I miss or go back and start earlier because skipping anything is. But get this. So we say, I'm picking up in verse four. John to the seven churches that are in Asia. Grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. And from the seven spirits who are before his throne. And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of the kings of the earth. An amazingly concise theology of the Trinity. To him who loves us. Uh, Well, I link over there and say, all right, well, let's look at the book of Ephesians 1 verses 4 and 5 and say, in love, he predestined us for adoption as his sons through Jesus Christ, according to the pleasure of his goodwill. So it's not um, given that John would anchor his text in the love of God, and then relate that love to the person of Jesus. Who loves you? God. Who's the one who frees you? By his blood, Jesus. Are those one and the same? Yes. Has freed us from our sins, okay? That's just one phrase that I pulled out and go, okay, he freed us from our sins. Matthew 1, verse 21 She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus because he will save the people from their sins. Uh, There's a pretty complex doctrine of salvation in the prologue, let's just say, uh, that goes on, and you can find linkages in Hebrews 10.10, where it says, he freed us how? By his blood. Well, let me give you Hebrews uh, 10.10, which says, And by that will, we have been sanctified through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus once for all. What is the once and for all covering of the new exodus that purifies humanity? The blood of Christ. It goes on. He has made us a kingdom of priests uh, to God, his father. Let me link you back to Exodus 19.6, which is the first which is the covenant, it's Sinai, it's Israel at the foot of the mountain facilitating the marriage of heaven and earth. And the verse that you want here is, Now if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you will be my treasured possession out of all the nations, for the whole earth is mine. And unto me you shall be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So John is saying, Israel does exist. There is a kingdom of priests. It exists in the seven churches who are the people of God, linking back to all of the theological work we did in the church episode. And then I'm skipping on to this, he is coming with the clouds of heaven. I'm going to give you 1 Thessalonians 4.17. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. This anticipation of the parousia that we talked about, the appearance of the king where we rush out to meet him in the image of the clouds being, well, references Daniel 7. It calls 
Jesus, the cloud rider, the supreme God of heaven and earth in Old Testament style, and also looks forward to his coming again to be with his people. And by the way, then you get in verse 8, all of these uh, linkages to the Old Testament revelation of the God who is Yahweh. I am the Alpha and the Omega, who is and who was, sorry, says the Lord God, Uh, There's an Old Testament reference for you. Who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty, linking him to the picture of both the El Elyon and the El Shaddai out of the Old Testament, and we're only eight verses in. (laughs) So there's, there's a beginning on that prologue, which is a greeting and then a theological overview that reminds me quite a bit of Ephesians chapter 1, where you see John's incredible familiarity with the gospel of Jesus. Because, I mean, how many people could put such a concise representation of the gospel into eight verses? The part of this prologue I want to call some attention to, because uh, an astute reader might be a little disturbed or have a question is going back to verse 4. Grace and peace to you from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. That is certainly a Trinitarian greeting. Grace and peace to you from the Holy Trinity. The weird part is the part about the Holy Spirit, and from the seven spirits before his throne. There's tons of dispute on pretty much, well... (laughs) you know, every word of this entire text, but certainly regarding the identity of the seven spirits. And there are many sevens throughout the Revelation. I think the strongest argument to say this is certainly the Holy Spirit is because of the formulation of this doxology. Grace and peace to you from him who is and who was and who was to come. It's the Father from the seven spirits before his throne. It's the Holy Spirit from Jesus Christ. What do we do about this depiction of the Holy Spirit as seven spirits? The way I like to read it is as the sevenfold spirit, and that's more of an interpretive overlay than how it should be translated. There's a long precedent, actually, of the spirit being described in terms of seven, far more than we'll be able to get into in this conversation. I wanted to read a couple of things that might help bring some, some texture to this identification of the Holy Spirit as sevenfold. One of the most famous passages is from Isaiah. And the chapter, I want to say 12, anyways, I just have the the actual text. So it says, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. This chapter is actually well known as describing the Holy Spirit in seven ways. The Spirit of the Lord spirit of wisdom, spirit of understanding, spirit of counsel, spirit of might, spirit of knowledge, and the spirit of the fear of the Lord. There's a tradition there reading that as a sevenfold description of the Holy Spirit. Then you have this idea that the Holy Spirit is the one who perfects the work of the Father and the Son. The number seven is a number of perfection. Jesus goes so that he can send the Holy Spirit to his church to bring to completion his work in the church. So the Holy Spirit actually perfects the work of the Father and the Son. So I don't think we need to feel worried about this description of the Holy Spirit as seven spirits or sevenfold spirit. It's a really, a really beautiful way of talking about 
who the Holy Spirit is. There are many other passages, actually. There's some really strange ones in the Old Testament about the seven eyes of God. You're in Zechariah. Yeah, That's where I was going to go. Yeah, so in Zechariah 3, 6 through 10, we have, Hear now, O Joshua, the high priest, you and your friends who sit before you, for they are men who are assigned. Behold, I will bring my servant, the branch. For behold, on the stone that I have set before Joshua, on a single stone with seven eyes, I will engrave its inscription, declares the Lord of hosts, and I will remove the iniquity of this land in a single day. That's not the one that you're probably thinking of. Do you have the seven eyes of God roaming through the world? You had Zechariah 3, nine, seven eyes on the stone, which yeah. is one of them. I also have 4.10 open, which is the one you just said, yeah. of who dares despise the day of small things since the seven eyes of the Lord that range through the earth will rejoice when they see the chosen capstone in the hand of Zerubbabel. Who's it's, a character I'd love to talk about in another episode. Yes. Yeah. Second uh, Chronicles 16.9 has something similar without the seven. For the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to give strong support to those whose heart is blameless toward him. So what we're saying is that there is a rich Old Testament tradition of describing the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God, as in terms of seven, as seven eyes, on a stone, seven eyes ranging throughout the earth. And actually, in sevens, in other contexts, like sometimes it's the seven channels on a lampstand, uh, elsewhere in Zechariah, which I'll give you a verse, uh, four, two, and, or seven flames. But again, this is one of those things, which is y- you have to do a little bit of homework you have to be an adept, humble student of these things. And I'm going to give you two, the Ellicott commentary, which is one that I actually like very often, and the Meyer commentary. I also like the Lane. Um, it's great to draw from multiple commentaries and to see intelligent people talking to each other. But here's Ellicott, um, interesting guy. And he says, I'm sorry, I'm looking for the beginning. The interpretation which would understand these seven spirits to be the seven chief angels, though supported by names of great weight, is plainly untenable. The context makes it impossible to admit any other meaning meaning than that the greeting which comes from the Father and the Son comes also from the Holy Spirit sevenfold in his operations, whose gifts are diffused among all the churches who have just been defined as seven, and who divides to every man severally his will. For corresponding thoughts in the Old Testament, compare the seven lamps and seven eyes of Zechariah, and he goes on and on to a, to a theology of the description of the Holy Spirit. Here's, here's Meyer. Here we go. Because people always call them, well, they call them a lot of different things. He's going to say, the seven spirits are, according to Revelation 4, 5, where they appear before the throne of God, spirits of God himself. They are sent upon the whole earth in Revelation 1, 6. They are peculiar to the lamb as the seven eyes thereof. Christ has the seven spirits. Thus, they belong to God and Christ himself in a way other than can be conceived of any creature. And he goes on, they cannot be conceived of as attributes or manifestations. And he gets into, the spirit is the spirit of Christ. I, when I read these guys uh, writing <laughs> these long things, I feel my exasperation reflected <laughs> in their evident exper- exasperation where they're like, come on, 
it, it's a beautiful, complex reality. And I love that John doesn't say, and from the Holy Spirit, but instead picks up this theme of the attributes of God, the presence of God among his people, the vision of God roaming over the earth. You said in the beginning that the allusions to the Old Testament aren't quotations. It's not like the letters of Paul, in which there are. There are no quotations. But instead, there are these multi-layered pictures that call all of these parts of God's nature to mind as you consider the Holy Spirit. Good. Uh, Going back to verse 1. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant, John. So I'll read the whole, the whole verse. The revelation from Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant, John. First of all, we've kind of gone back and forth on this question of what's the best way to read this and a little flip-flopping just because of like reading so much scholarship. I'm definitely landing on this is the apocalypse that God gave Jesus and that Jesus gave John. The very possibly out there interpretation of who is this angel which is a question that most people wouldn't even ask necessarily, but is definitely one asked a lot in scholarship. I think the best guess is that this angel is Jesus. And I'm so <laughs> glad you said that. I was getting ready to you, you just were getting accommodate ready to what Metatron. you said. Yeah, This angel then, is Metatron. It's, no, it's not Metatron, <laughs> and there is no Metatron. <laughs> I don't know about that last part, but there's certainly, I think it's best to see this angel as Jesus. I don't want to fully actually develop that idea until we get to the part of the revelation where there's the giant angel and the little scroll. That's a, There's a little squirrel? <laughs> that's more of a sticky note that I want to refer to later. All that I will say now is that the Old Testament and the way it reveals Yahweh, the different embodiments, the different hypostases of Yahweh, there's this long precedent, if you're paying attention, for really interesting questions about how many Yahwehs are there. It opens up very interesting interpretive territory for understanding how Jesus is described. There is precedent for him being described in angelic terms. The word is messenger. That's all I'm going to say about it for this time. I'm going to say one more I thing about it for this time. About it. <laughs> Again, I'm not going to be exhaustive because we're almost at 50 minutes. <laughs> The funny thing is we originally were like, let's talk about Revelation in an episode. Stupid. Stupid. (laughs) Is Sinai and the giving of the law through an intermediary, which gets referenced here in the beginning, which is Paul says that the law was given, you know, either through angels or through an intermediary. And if you read Heiser, if you read De Young, the consensus is that, you know, Moses as a prophet stands in the council of God, having a visionary experience of God's government, and that Jesus, the eternal embodied hypostasis of God, gives the law to Moses and is described in the text as God's angel. It's not the only time he's described that way. Uh, It's not the entire picture. But it is one picture that is referenced here at the beginning is that image of beholding God's government and then the angel who is Christ entrusting a revelation to a person. The short version of this conversation is that the angel of Yahweh is Jesus. There we go. Uh, another verse I don't want to, I know this is, who knows how many episodes this is going to be. A very important verse, we've already mentioned it in some of our intros, but it cannot be skipped, is verse 3. I'm going to read in Hart's translation, how blissful both that lector of and those listeners to the prophecy who also abide by the things written therein for the time is near. 
So the way that Hart translates it, he's saying how blissful, which is the same word from the Beatitudes, Makarios, how divinely happy both the person that reads aloud this text and the person that listens to it and who abides by the things written therein. So if you're of the ilk that would shake your head at any attempt to understand the revelation, you are missing out on something because you're actually supposed to keep it. You're supposed to abide by it. There's a response demanded. And there's a blessing if you do so. And it's urgent because the time is near. Here we go. I can't believe that we can't get people to show up to our Bible studies more often. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, you're all so interested, right? So we just did the prologue, chapter 1, 1 to 8. Now, the next thing that happens is the vision of what Scott McKnight calls the Colossus Christ, which we talked about in detail in episode one. So unless you have more to say, I'm going to say, go back to episode one and listen to our conversation if you're curious about the depth of the depiction, all of the Old Testament imagery of Yahweh that gets rolled together in Christ in uh, verses nine to 20. And so that allows us to start in chapter 2 with the messages to the churches. And so we're saying, again, actually, that the vision, by the way, uh, prologue 1 to 8. Then 1, 9 to 322 is the next big chunk. And so the messages to all the churches are nested inside this glorious revelation of Jesus. They get reminded who he is, how amazing, how lovable, how desirable. And so that you never forget, each of the messages to the churches is going to start with a callback to the cosmic Christ. So they're all going to start with, you know, invert chapter 2, verse 1, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and who walks among the seven golden lampstands. And then you go down to verse 8, the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. Verse 12, the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. So every one of these messages, which by the way, we're going to get into it, these messages have some serious teeth is going to call back to this vision of the risen Jesus, the exalted Yahweh. And then it's going to proceed. Eugene Peterson gives it this form. He says, the three essential parts of each of the messages is an affirmation, a correction, and a motivating promise. And I would add to Eugene Peterson, each of the seven messages, you get a picture of Jesus, an affirmation, a correction, and a motivating promise. Where to in the messages? Man, I'm going to say two quick things about 1, 9 through 19. I know that this is, we're not doing a word by word, so we're turning the focus dial and figuring out our, our level of zoom here. So uh, one, I'm just going to read Daniel 7, 9 through 14 real quick. It says, as I looked, thrones were placed in the ancient of days, took his seat. His clothing was white as snow and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousand served him and 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. The court sat in judgment. Very important line to understand what this scene's about. And the, and the subsequent study we'll do here. The court sat in judgment and the books were opened. I looked then because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking. And as I looked, the beast was killed and its body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. 
I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man, and he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Woo woo! <laughs> yes, praise God. Hopefully you're picking up the point of reading that passage is it provides context for everything that's about to happen here. All these ways that John is describing Jesus, he identifies Jesus as the Ancient of Days, the Angel of the Lord, the Commander of the Lord's Armies. He identifies Jesus as the Divine Man in the Old Testament, Yahweh Embodied. With a shining face, John identifies Jesus as the Transfigured One from Matthew and the, and the Divine Warrior who shines with God's glory, folding in several passages from the Hebrew Bible, and he's the one who will vanquish all of God's enemies. We could go on. There's a lot going on in this text. But you said, and it's so important, that the books being open, the divine council being in session, is important to have in the back of your mind. And it's going to get referenced here. I mean, actually, it's going to get referenced so many times. (laughs) It's the background image of the revelation, which is Christ presiding over the divine council. Do you recall the name of our most focused Divine Council episode? I think that it was called... Hang on, I'll just pull it up right now. I'm just going to say, listener, that if you haven't listened to our earlier episode that introduces... The Powers. powers. Episode six. So this is our best episode on Divine Council theology. You need to listen to that one, or at least understand the concepts therein, to keep up with this conversation. But one of the things is that The Divine Council shows up in the story of God at the big moments, okay? Oh, I have chills just thinking about this. Okay. um, Whatever, I'm going to tell you, because probably no one's ever told you this before. God, in consultation with his Divine Council, you know, you know, in all capital letters, something is about to happen. We're about to take a step forward in salvation history. And so, during the creation event— when God consults his divine counsel, let us make man in our image, you know that something is changing in the development of creation. Oh my gosh, we're at something new. Human imagers are being introduced to the story. But what I love is that Genesis 3, at the fall, after God announces the consequences of the rebellion on humanity and on the seraph, he There's this sacrifice that takes place. There's the giving of these garments of inheritance. And then it says in verse 22, and the Lord God said, the man has now become like one of us. And if you're an ancient Hebrew, your ears are burning that there's just been a context change. And because, so now the council's in session again and judgment's about to be pronounced. So the earlier things, are they a part of the judgment? Yes, kind of. They're mostly described as, I mean, Never mind. We're not going to go back. <laughs> um, but you get the judgment here. And divine counsel's in session. We're going to move forward. Man's become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take from the tree of life and live forever. And you would think if you were following this story, and so we're going to kill them both. And then it says, so the Lord banished him. And you're like, oh my gosh oh my gosh, this story is not ending right here. You are brilliantly going to keep moving forward. But Sinai 
the exile, the prophetic visions, when something big is going to happen, you're going to see God presiding over the cosmos, deliberating with his staff team, who he created, on how to address the complex problem of evil. That's going on throughout the book of Revelation, which is a picture of God's war against evil. And so it's constantly, what are we going to do? We're going to do this. Why? To save humanity. It says something amazing about God's generosity and his relational nature as the Holy Trinity, his, his humility, actually, that he delights in sharing his authority with delegates. My best distillation of the divine counsel story that will help us, if you have no idea what we're talking about with divine counsel language, is the divine counsel are the lowercase g gods, originally, were the lowercase g gods that God created to administrate, to delegate authority to, to administrate his creation. A big chunk of them rebelled in the series of falls that happened in which spiritual powers rebelled in conjunction with humanity, which means there's a big vacancy in the divine council. How does he refill those job postings, so to speak? Well, they are occupied by the saints. And so the purpose of a human life, the purpose of humanity is to become like Christ, become a son of God, to join God's divine council. And he has seen fit to form us into the kind of beings that can administrate creation with him. So that's what we're talking about when we say the context for this whole courtroom scene. He's calling, he's setting up a courtroom. First he judges the churches themselves, and then he goes on to judge the nations. And the faithful witnesses, martyrs, the, the saints are the ones that, along with angels and other creatures, are the ones participating in this courtroom scene with him. Yeah, and one of the most I did this math on another episode and then I re, when I listened to the edit, I didn't give the punchline. Yeah, I, I couldn't I, buy. I, I kept thinking about did that. You, and I was like, <laughs> how many people understood when How many people followed? So, here's what it is. That the the main number for the seats on God's government, the number which is all the nations is 70 or sometimes 72. And the nations each have corresponding gods. Yes. Uh, and so you could look at the table of nations in Genesis 10. You could look at the 70 elders of Israel who go up the mountain and see God in Exodus 24. You could look at the commissioning of the 70 or the 72 apostles, actually, uh, to go out in the Gospels. But the main thing you need to know is that 70 or 72 is used as the big picture for the for like God's presiding governmental spirit. So, and also in other ancient mythologies, Baal's court had 70 thrones. In fact, most of the old Mesopotamian courts had 70 thrones. So, here's the math in Revelation 12, it says this the dragon's tail, this is verse four, swept a third of the stars out of the sky and flung them to the earth. All right. So let's divide 72 by 3, 24. Okay. So then let's look at Revelation 4, 10 and 11. The 24 elders fall down before him that sat on the throne and worship him that lives forever and ever and cast their crowns before him. So you get humans who have taken, the number is representative of the fact that they are taking over the vacated positions of rebellious spirits in God's government over the cosmos. What, did I get it this time? I was, I was so, 
annoyed at myself last time when I listened to the episode and I introduced the concept and that I didn't at the end say, and that's why you get 24 elders in Revelation 4. If we say any more, we're just repeating an episode we've already recorded. So go to the powers episode if you, if you need more help here. All right. So here's my goal for today. We're at an hour and of sort of the six sections, we talked about the prologue. In an earlier episode, we talked about the vision of the risen Christ. I would like to see if we can capture in the next like 15 minutes the pith of the messages to the seven churches. What do you think? I think that's possible. It'll be frustrating, but we're not going to get further than that. And we need to get through that. All right. I'm going to give the big quote and then I'll let you start drilling down. I'm going to give you the big quote from Gorman who says, while each church, because we said in the other episode that, that the issue here is complacency more than apostasy under persecution. And here's Gorman making that point again. While each church receives a message reflecting its own situation, there is one overarching issue, whether or not to compromise. Specifically, will these churches be faithful witnesses both to Jesus and like Jesus and John by refraining from participation in the cultural norm of pagan religion, including the imperial cult, even if it entails serious consequences, social, economic, and political? Will they join the Nicolaitans, Balaamites, followers of Jezebel and Laodiceans who are participating in various forms of compromise and accommodation? Or will they not? There's the theme. Where to next? That's good. Something that we need to hold in tandem. On the one hand, these are seven distinct churches. These cities have historical locations in the western part of Turkey. He goes through each church in a geographical arc that is basically like a half moon or a semicircle. These churches were historical, and they had real situations, and he was writing to them. Layer one of understanding this whole text is realizing that it's not only relevant to the people that live up until the return of Christ. It's not about, you know, helicopters and modern technology, et cetera. <laughs> that, that, <laughs> I know, I know. Uh, I think we all know. We've <laughs> all been there. Yeah. Oh, man. I'm, throughout the study, I've thought so much about my initial interpretations of this text as a teenager or a preteen, how off they were. The point is, there were real people in history that John was writing to encourage. Simultaneously, and I think the sevenfold nature of these churches and this menorah of churches implies the church universal, and it's certainly written for us. So every word of these letters to the churches is relevant to us as well. We simply can't let go of one or the other as we try to understand what John is talking about. So I said menorah, and the picture that you should have in your mind with these seven lampstands, a menorah is a single candelabra that has seven stands for seven candles. I'm sure you've seen one. One note I draw from that is that while there are seven distinct churches, there is really one church universal. A very basic thing that we probably all know, but it's important to realize that all the churches are connected in this larger picture. We took another one of those breaks in the silence. We decided how we're going to make this helpful, what we want to say that's going to make you love Jesus more, see your life more clearly be freed into the way that is really life. And we kind of have to stop where we are. I have a meeting with my church co-leader. You have a job. And so we'll pick up next time actually getting into the historical situation of these churches 
I was going to say something general about them, but that's actually something I really like to not do <laughs> um, and say, you know, there are general tendencies in the church. There are like general ways to accommodate the world inside the church, but it gets, you know, it gets fleshy. It gets real when you describe a real historical challenge that looks a lot like a contemporary challenge. So my just question is, Ant-Man, bring us in for a landing. Where do we leave this conversation? So I think the place that we leave off here is I'm going to assign you, listener, a little homework. It's not something that we can necessarily do together with a guided audio recording, but I'm going to give you some instructions for a way of reading the Bible that is called Lectio Divina, which means divine reading. What I want you to do is find some time. It could be anywhere from, I don't know, 10 minutes to an hour, whatever. Find some time, and I want you to come back to verses 1 through 8 of chapter 1. The prologue, the greetings, the doxology. Here are the steps to the Lectio Divina. It's a four-part way of reading the Bible meditatively, contemplatively, prayerfully, and it has proven to be a useful tool for the church for a very long time. I like to associate the four steps with tasting, chewing, swallowing, and digesting. That's a more modern overlay to these steps, which are lectio, meditatio, oratio, and contemplatio. The lectio, step one, is to read the text slowly, prayerfully, listening for that word that God has prepared for you. And you might want to reread the same text a few times, quiet yourself in your interior, and focus on God's voice. So, Step one, lectio, is just to read it and to listen and see what part of it God highlights for you. That's the tasting step. Meditatio, the chewing step, meditation, is when that word or phrase strikes you, stop and rest with it. Repeat that word or phrase to yourself and allow it to speak to you in a personal way. Ponder that word in your heart. Reflect on what it means to you. Perhaps memorize it, repeat it to yourself. And allow it to interact with your thoughts, hopes, memories, and desires so you're chewing on this word. Step three, oratio, is prayer, the swallowing step. (laughs) Prayer is your response to this word. It begins your dialogue with God. It comes from your heart. Formulate a prayer as a response to God. What do you want to say to the Lord in response to the word spoken to you? So enter into a loving conversation with God. Step four is contemplatio, contemplation, digestion. It's where you take it in. And this step is more passive. You rest in God's presence. You receive his transforming embrace. You sit still with him. You realize that in this deep, profound relationship, words aren't necessary. You're content and at peace with a wordless, quiet, resting God. It should bring joy to your heart. And remember that contemplation is not your action or doing. Rather, it's allowing God to act in you. I tend to read the passage in its entirety at least four times, once per step, as I'm doing this practice. So again... Go to Revelation chapter 1, verses 1 through 8, read it, and go through these four steps of Lectio, Meditatio, Oratio, Contemplatio. And I hope that's a blessing to you.